what I'm looking at is the stuff that nobody else really sees. The stuff that's not already made it to the highest priority, you know, critical alert. You know, the SOC analysts handle those type of things. I'm looking for really subtle things that I can later, if I find more badness behind it, I may end up making my own intrusion detection signatures or work with other people to have the rules or intrusion detection signatures that later can be used for other analysts to look at. This is the Future of Cyber Risk podcast, brought to you by Team Cymru. I'm your host, David Monier, fellow at Team Cymru. Let's jump right into today's episode. Hey everyone, and thanks for listening to another episode of the Future of Cyber Risk podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Bob Carver, Principal Cybersecurity Threat Intelligence and Analytics at Verizon. Bob, thanks for chatting with us today. Hey, David, pleasure to be here. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. So, Bob, typically, you know, we like to get started with an uh, intro about yourself. If you could tell us some about your background and, you know, what led you to be where you're at with Verizon. Sure. Actually, I was a career changer. I actually managed a lot of commercial real estate properties. And in today's value, it'd probably be worth $10 billion, but I was tired of the boom and bust. Went back to grad school and started working for a financial firm doing network management and analytics, that sort of thing, to know what's going on in the network and make sure the network was running smoothly. My uh, first security project was implementing an encryption system or a key management center in 1999. And that was later used to transfer many millions of dollars between major financial institutions. Later, I started doing various volunteer work in security, forwarded uh, IDS alerts to a mother of all managers. The Basically, it's a system that manages network alerts across the network. Also utilized a network data flows in helping detect malware and botnet activity and acting a beta tester for a lot of new security systems. Then later was hired to be the employee number one for the uh, largest wireless provider in the U.S., starting the cybersecurity and monitoring and incident response team. I have delivered a keynote presentations on cybersecurity twice at the International Monetary Fund since then, delivered keynotes in North America, UK, and the EU, spoke on an expert panel at the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas, uh, LinkedIn had recommended me in the top five in the world in cybersecurity to follow for my post, and now I work in network security, threat intelligence, and analytics, and work on developing security strategy and threat hunting. So I got to ask, what's the speaker swag look like at the CEC? Do they send you home with a 70-inch Bravia TV or anything cool like that? <laughs> Unfortunately, not anything close to that. Uh, I got a coffee mug, you know, that's insulated. So, <laughs> hey, better well, than nothing. Better than yeah, a Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. And I'm sure it's something that has copy protection on it and uh, needs its battery changed every three months. So. Exactly. So tell us some about what your day-to-day look like. So threat hunting, incident response, and, and things like that, as well as strategic guidance, right? Those are two pretty far bookends. Uh, yeah, they, they do go absolutely. together in the same library. But what's some of that look like for you? Yeah, so I usually started the day early reading very uh, security and privacy related news in the early morning just to see what's going on in the world in general. I pick a few posts for scheduling a LinkedIn and Twitter or now X. I log in to my uh, work computer and look at the emails and the uh, messaging channels to see if there's anything new that needs immediate attention. And then I start looking at, you know, intrusion detection alerts. And then also 
I scan packet captures and try to look for anomalous activity. I've actually discovered some things that took a couple of years before the CISA and the FBI discovered and made them public. So I had them, but it's interesting, you know, you say, oh, look, I found this. And they said, well, well, who else has found this? <laughs> you know, or who who backs you up on this? And it's like, well, CISA hasn't come out yet. FBI and or none of the major security firms have come out yet, but uh, I have the evidence here. So anyway, yeah. and then you go from there. So news sources, what's your favorite to start the day? Oh boy. Uh, you know, Hacker News is not bad. The others, it's sort of a hit and miss. I, I just do a round robin of various different RSS feeds and see what's good at the particular time. But I would say uh, the Hacker News has a pretty consistent finding at least one little golden nugget from time to time. Okay. But you know, I look at all the other ones. I look at CSO Online. I actually did a few articles for CSO Online for a while and you know, dark reading on and on. You know the regulars, so. Yeah, yeah. I'm familiar with at least dark reading for sure. So you had mentioned also getting started your day, kind of looking at IDS alerts and things like that. I would imagine an enterprise your size has to be producing millions an hour. Oh, I mean, oh yeah. Million, millions a day. Millions. So, so, <laughs> so of those, you know, in a volume like that, I would imagine you have lots of people that you could delegate this to. What's some of the things that are worth your time? Well, I tell you what I'm looking at is the stuff that nobody else really sees. The stuff that's not already made it to the highest priority, you know, critical alert. You know, the SOC analysts handle those type of things. I'm looking for really subtle things that I can later, if I find more badness behind it, I may end up making my own intrusion detection signatures or work with other people to have the rules or intrusion detection signatures that later can be used for other analysts to, to look at. So mm -hmm. it's like building a risk case of uh, saying X, Y, and Z together are, are bad. We want to start seeing an analyst to be able to flag these going forward. And okay. it's, it's a process. We meet with the analyst once a week and go over various things that are happening in the network. And over time, if something raises to a level of criticality, then we flag that as such. So okay. the SOC analyst can do it the first line. And then also we help them if the needed be to put a process around that to deal with that. Okay. So, and you mentioned also taking a look at PCAPs, you know, oh, yeah. every day. So again, speaking to the volume, the size of your network, that no, can't be trivial either, I would imagine. No. Um, so <laughs> you you have to kind of trillions, trillions a day. Yeah I, yeah, I would think so. Yeah, so what's that look like? Well, what I do, there's different ways to do it, but uh, what I call it slicing and dicing. So, you know, you might look at just ports and protocols, that sort of thing, and then different countries, and then you might tie it to certain assets, and you just keep on doing, you know, the slicing and dicing, those filters that would narrow it down to something that looks interesting. And to be honest, there's a lot of times that you end up at a dead end and it's like, oh, okay, that's this is a normal situation. Mm -hmm. But then there's other times every once in a while you find something that I found multiple times. I found things that went through every security system on the planet mm -hmm. and uh, the whether it be a cyber criminals and nation state have done their homework and they've already put it through all those security systems that are out there. And uh, you find something that's interesting and then you flag it. And then you, you have somebody to start assisting you. Or a lot of times we turn it over to the SOC analyst for a further investigation. But if necessary, 
I'll jump into to make sure that all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed. You know, they don't miss sure. anything. And eventually may even go to forensics, depending yeah, on the situation. You know, you, you mentioned kind of sneakiness. You know, one of the things that I have seen in the past, but I don't really know how prevalent this is, but I have seen adversaries make use of what I would call less common, in some cases, exceptionally uncommon, IP mm -hmm. protocols. Um, yes. You know, everybody tends to think of TCP IP, UDP IP, mm -hmm. ICMP IP, and they forget that there are more than 200 specific potential IP protocols. Right. Um, and GRE, IP IP being, you know, very common ones. Mm -hmm. I'd be interested to know, like, is that something that you also pay attention sure. to? Is, is that something that sticks out to you as well? Do you sure. see it very often? Yeah. There's a lot of younger analysts that I've met that they just don't think that anything bad's going to happen unless there's going to be a TCP handshake. <laughs> and, yeah. and unfortunately, that's not the case. I have seen badness in UDP packets. And then there's times where the handshake may have taken place a month or two ago, and it may not show up in anything that's happened in the near time. Mm -hmm. So you can't just say, oh, well, if there's no TCP handshake and it's, uh, you know, there's nothing bad there. There's definitely, I've seen it happen in a lot of different uh, protocols. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The one, the protocol combat radio, I'm very interested. Uh, it's oh, an wow. IP protocol um, yeah. that has uh, potential for both voice and I believe it could potentially bundle, you know, quite a bit of data as well. It'd be interesting yeah. to me uh, yeah. to see, you know, how common that is, you know, especially big networks. If you don't mind yeah. me asking, and obviously, you know, feel free to say, you know, it's mm -hmm. information or whatnot, but how right. big is Verizon's network? Like what's the aggregate uh, oh, oh, uh, capacity? Is it uh, uh, petabytes? Is it, uh, or petabits? Yeah, it's huge. I tell you, I haven't checked it recently. I think they had like, it's over 150 million customers now. Yeah. I think that's just wireless. Yeah. So, and then they have wireline and then they have, you know, government contracts and they, uh, you know, anyway, they got a lot of contracts. So you guys so, will be uh, tip of the spear for IPv6 exhaustion, right? Oh, uh, well, <laughs> I, I don't think, I don't think we're going to get there during my uh, career. <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, definitely IPv4 has been gone for quite some time. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm being facetious. So yeah. let's talk some about skill sets, both either, you know, that you have, that you bring to bear, that you feel are critical, but also to include the people that work for you that, uh, you know, when you're looking sure. at analysts and whatnot, what are some of the skill sets that you prioritize and look for in folks? And what are the skill sets that you yourself try to maintain and, and stay sharp with? Sure. You know, I'm reflecting in the past. I was fortunate to be exposed at the beginning more to network type of activity and doing Armon and just all sorts of network type monitoring protocols to know not only what's going on in the network, to know capacity planning, to make sure there's nothing going wrong in the network, that sort of thing. But then I was able to start doing some sysadmin activity after that and learn about bringing up a server, hardening those servers finding out what the processes were, the way the disks are laid out and that sort of thing, some basics in that sort of area before I started doing anything security-wise. And I would like to see a lot of companies to try to go back to that some. I have some people that have been hired. And of course, during when I started, and probably when you started too, it was more of a Unix than Linux. 
Linux was sort of a hobby <laughs> operating system at the beginning, and then now, you know, that's the backbone of, of the back room of, of a lot of corporations. But I would like to see people have more of a diverse background like that. I mean, you probably have, and I have, I, you know, I built a couple computers a long time ago, you know, set up a little mini network at home, just sort of learned how everything worked and fit together and uh, operated. But I'm seeing a few people that have gaps in that sort of thing. They may have one thing, but not the other. And, uh, you know, it'd be good if, if they had a little more a rounded background before they started in security. Yeah, couldn't agree more with that. Matter of fact, the financial institution that I worked at, that's one of the things they did. They had people that worked in the, the network operations center, and then they learned, you know, they learned more about dealing with servers and that sort of thing. And then once they got to that point, then they could go into an entry-level security position. Mm-hmm. And I would like to see that happen more and more today, if at all possible. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more, you know, not to, uh, you know, be one of those grumpy old men who's like, back in my day, uh, yeah. kind of back in my day, that right. is how it was, just like you described. And I could come up with a few examples, but there's significant value in understanding the foundational aspects of what it is that you're doing. And, you know, there are aspects of computing that are completely removed now for the most part. And, Things like, for example, understanding how a CPU works to know that mm-hmm. there are multiple layers of cache that they perform at different levels of performance. The capability is significantly higher if you can get your data set to fit in those confines of mm-hmm. those closer to the core memory pieces. And then if you can get your question to fit into the specific length of a CPU register, right? I mean, we're talking, you know, 10x performance if you can make these things happen on the CPU versus outside of it. And, uh, you know, these days, a lot of people, unfortunately, are unaware of this. And this is just the software development, right? Love right. I'm talking about. But like these folks end up buying, you know, incredibly expensive hardware solutions for things that frankly they could have optimized, you know, with software. And that's mm-hmm. just, you know, one example. Other sure. examples of it is, you know, that's been completely abstracted away with the notion of cloud computing. With mm-hmm. cloud computing, everything is in a virtualization mm-hmm. scenario for the most part. And regardless of your hypervisor, regardless of the technology that you're using, there is actually an underlying set of CPUs there. And there are mm-hmm. hypervisors that do direct executions and things like this. But that information's, you know, largely gone. And there's a bunch of attacks that happen at that layer that are completely overlooked because they don't know to know, you know, Mm -hmm. folks don't know to know. Network performance, same idea. You know, people rely on the kernel or some other thing to come and manage how big a packet should be. They don't actually think Mm -hmm. like, oh, I should optimize, you know, my packets. And, you know, this kind of, for what if it's called an abstraction, I guess that's happened, Mm -hmm. I would say it's largely detrimental. I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, there's like developers now are working in language sets that they have removed, for example, the idea of garbage collection, but that's nonsense. I mean, like you still should Mm -hmm. actually be doing that yourself because it would be more efficient if the user space uh, was aware of what was happening, you know, but the bad part of it is, and the thing that bothers me 
you know, it's not like keeps me up at night, but when I think of kind of this direction that we've taken where everything is easier, which I would argue these were winning decisions, by the way, I, I think these were optimizations presented to us to make technology more accessible to the masses, therefore mm -hmm. allowing more people in the workforce to come up and start to deliver kind of the needs of society because technology is just becoming more and more, right? But, you know, like if you just look at Rust versus C, you know, versus Golang or, you know, Perl to Python, if you look at, you know, some of these, mm -hmm. I would say that it, it made it much more accessible to many more people to come and do it. Right. Uh, but those kind of old ways to do it, you know, who I have seen does pay attention to these things and knows this. Mm -hmm our adversaries in oh, particular yeah. in the nation state space oh, sure. uh, if you yeah if you look at in particular implants or rootkits if you will in particular in the unix like operating system space if right. you look at some of the optimizations <laughs> that they make in particular for exfiltration they're paying attention they know to put specific quantities of data in each like if they're datagrams they know to fill them to a specific capacity if it's tcpip they know sure. to avoid congestion and fragmentation Documentation. And those folks seem to actually take yeah. performance, you know, in, into consideration. Exactly. Yeah. And, I, and, and I've heard stories even years ago that, you know, teenagers in Eastern Bloc countries, you know, memorizing the x86 documents <laughs> just to know what they're doing, you know, to, to be able to optimize what, exactly what you were talking about. Yeah. And, you know, this is how some of these in-memory kits work too, you know, is because they sure. know that you can safely live within certain address ranges. Whereas if mm -hmm. you were to grab, you know, the average CompSci student and say, hey, tell me about these things, they would say, well, I have never learned any of this. Hey, you know, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't get yeah. it. So, Or ask your endpoint vendor just exactly what type of detections they, they can detect in memory. Yeah, absolutely. With, with all the specifics behind it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And and the and you'll get just a blank stare. So anyway, yeah. that's enough, uh, cranky old men. Uh, <laughs> uh, so thanks for joining us, folks. We're off to the blue plates. There you go. But no, uh, but yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more on that stuff. So obviously, you guys work in a very let's call it attractive environment. The network itself mm -hmm. is massive. You know, someone being able to have access to that network, uh, your massively connected, uh, massively peered network, uh, right. with lots and lots of noise to kind of hide in and things like that. Can you tell me some about how do you guys approach, let's call it staff security awareness? Mm -hmm. Like, are there any things like, do you yeah. take special considerations? Are there special programs that you run your people through? Can you tell us some about that? Sure, sure. You know, they do uh, regular training where, you know, a lot of it, they do phishing training, of course, and then they have some video training where they go through certain situations and uh, to try to help educate the people, especially about some of the latest social engineering. And of course, phishing is near the top of the list of, of that sort of thing. Of course, you know, talking about the uh, casinos in Las Vegas recently, I mean, seems like a lot of that was due to social engineering, to getting in their network, you know. A nice little 10 minute phone call and some very helpful staff uh, all of a sudden helped these guys get into the network and it is now causing, you know, multi millions of dollars of, of damage for them uh, going forward. But one of the things that I started noticing years ago, and this is sort of a whole process of, of making these happen, you know, sort of a risk management process, I noticed we let people at the beginning years ago, download software like, say, like Putty and FileZilla and, you know, things that, you know, sysadmins would need to do their job. 
and they would just go out and just wherever they found it, yeah, they would the first Google hit, <laughs> they would download the software. And fortunately, a lot of the software was found out to be malicious. It was not always from good, safe sites. So uh, it took a, a while, but finally, uh, me and some other people convinced people that we had to have more of a closed system, you know, uh, a walled garden per se of downloading software. And if you would have asked me in the early days, it's like, hey, I'm, I want to download software wherever I want to. But now I lean way much more to a, a walled garden where you have vetted software and you know, know good software. So we started doing that. And so the tools that people needed, they were vetted and put into an internal site where people could download them and sort of thing. The other thing was, you know, just having phishing mails or, or suspicious emails being able to communicate that to the masses and say, hey, you know, if you see something suspicious, forward it to the security operations center. Don't don't click on anything. Don't touch it. Don't, you know, give us your findings. And then that eventually elevated to the point where we have a phishing button or a suspicious email button. And people write in their email. All they do is highlight the email, bring the email up and push the button and it automatically goes to the security operations center and they can open an investigation to see if it is malicious. If it is malicious, then we put that information related to that email into the systems to be able to make it mitigate it or block it in future iterations. Yeah, absolutely. So. Yeah, I've always been a huge fan of the philosophy that every employee at your company is a member of the security team. You know, it obviously this doesn't scale in the kinetic space, right? Like you can't give an award to every person who calls 911. Right. Uh, but when it comes to cyber threat, I've always been a fan of every person, no matter what it turns out to be, benign or malicious, mm -hmm. is you thank them and, you know, maybe it's, you know, swing right. by and give them a Tootsie Roll. You know, I, I don't mm -hmm. know. But I have always been a huge fan, you know, right. in that idea. That seems to be, you know, where success happens. Yeah. Completely agree. You, you don't you don't punish people. You uh, reward people with, and even if it's just a thank you, yeah, absolutely, yeah, absolutely, thank you. So let's talk future. So, sure. uh, you know, what do you think the future holds for kind of you know cyber as a whole, risk wise and threat wise? You know, where do you think we're headed, and and how do you think we're going to be able to uh, react? Yeah. A lot of opportunities. <laughs> Right. <laughs> I would hope we would start to see a lot more AI, machine learning, possibly even neural networks to monitor networks in real time, not only maybe determining the relative risk of what's going on, but integrating with security monitoring and incident response where you're actually doing the risk assessments in near real time. And then even maybe even be able to have some automation involved with that, too. I think I'd like to like to see more proactive and preemptive type situations where we're able to mitigate those situations before the uh, threat actors can take advantage. Maybe even, you know, find those CVEs before they're actually published. <laughs> you know, that may be a, a dream, but uh, I'm hoping that that's what we're going to eventually be able to attain. I think, of course, you know, to continue to have more training I think a lot of it is building a culture of security and realizing that everybody is, is important to the whole security process, not just people in the security operations center or risk management. Also training more systems where they're automated to detect malicious manipulations by threat actors. Maybe even those social engineering manipulations where 
you could have an AI listen in on a conversation and, and the, you know, the flag the user and say, wait a minute here, you know, this sounds like we're going in a, in a uh, situation where you're, you're going to be uh, manipulated by this threat actor. So, you know, keep your ear on the conversation. More integration of IT risk and security, uh, working with less silos, especially large companies. Sometimes there te- has a tendency to be fiefdoms and silos and uh, somehow breaking those down little by little. And continued evolution of self-monitoring, making adjustments automatically, and maybe even like self-healing networks, that sort of thing. We're actually starting to do that in some of the networks for more, I would say more operational than security, but we do, you know, all sorts of security monitoring also, but we're getting some networks that they're almost to the point of self-monitoring, self-healing type of thing, where they make adjustments on the fly. Sure. When you say adjustments, you're talking about policy changes, like this thing's talking too much. It's likely a DDoS. Let's go ahead and automatically drop it. Sure. Sure. It could be things like that. Exactly. Or or it could be flapping of of an interface of a particular network device. Okay. You know, where somebody needs to look at that. So you had talked about, you know, using AI as kind of like a real time tool. I saw recently a clip on LinkedIn. I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, to be honest, I'm a super skeptic anytime I see pretty much anything on the internet, but I don't know for sure that it's real, but I, I'm also not trying to besmirch this person and uh, imply that it wasn't real. But there is a person who at least claims to have created a real time where they combined both a uh, large language model as well as some type of like a deep fake visual capability. Mm-hmm. And this person was had developed essentially a video plugin where you spoke your native language and similar to like a babblefish, this thing converted your words into another language, but it also mm. changed your facial composition so sure. that it appeared you are, sorry, speaking mm-hmm. a language. So anybody who was looking at you would actually see that as well. And my first and uh, my immediate thought was, this is going to be bad for, you know, anybody trying to defend <laughs> themselves against, you know, social engineering. Um, sure. But you bring up a great point. It could also work in the other direction where, and you could probably get away with just using an LLM, uh, mm-hmm. some type of, you know, audio to text sure. component where the L- large language model was able to say, this person is asking you the setup questions that could lead, you know, to mm-hmm. some type of manipulation. And I think that would be like a no brainer. You know, I do predict though that before we get to that point, what's eventually going to have to happen is that you're going to have to, we're going to have to have greater incorporation for some type of out of band communications for people who hold accounts of like a, you know, certain value or or not. Mm -hmm. And that exercise requires somebody to go through and do a, who's the most important people at the company. And a Mm -hmm. lot of people just automatically say, well, it's the CEO Mm -hmm. and the C-suite, right? Right. But that's not necessarily true, right? Like the NT administrators who manage your group policy, who run your active directory service, I would argue are even more important than the CEO. No offense to the CEOs out there, but- uh, Understood. uh, You could grab the uh, CEO's computer and uh, eventually the email. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And and the CEO has, you know, their kind of 
social power or their, you know, what's called psychological power. They could, you know, give people orders and commands and, and uh, right. get people to do things. But that Active Directory administrator could actually get all of the password details for an entire organization. I, I just read recently over the weekend, you know, University of Michigan had just had an incident a week or two ago and that they had to basically air gap themselves from the internet as mm -hmm. a whole in order to do manage the containment. And then they issued a notice to their entire enterprise that everyone needed to change their passwords. And now mm. to everybody else, that probably just sounds like, well, they're just being safe or whatever. But that tells me as, as someone doing forensic analysis, mm -hmm. no, that means that your Active Directory, the system itself, not just its contained data, but the system running it likely was compromised. And you know, someone was either maybe reading credential information out of memory or you mm -hmm. know something like that. Sure. But really, really, you know, drastic move. And so speaks volume volumes, uh, you know, as to the, you know, potential risk and whatnot to an active directory manager. Sure. And, and for all the C-level folks out there, you should pay your active directory manager more. Uh, so, <laughs> exactly. Because <laughs> they're one of your, your key people in the organization. So anyway, Bob, totally would love to see all those things happen uh, like you described. I do think the future looks bright as far as integrations and automations. I think we're definitely headed you know, kind of down that path. I think a lot of what's driving it is like I mentioned earlier when talking about languages, I think that, well, frankly, our appetite uh, for technology mm -hmm. has far, far, far outpaced our ability to deliver on that appetite. Sure. Uh, so as we move forward, I mean, you know, the headcount gap, the manpower gap that people talk about in technology is always prevalent. But if you notice, there seem to be, you know, trends in how many people become developers. There seem to be trends in how many people tend to get into like flashy things like AI. But if you notice, cybersecurity is pretty much stayed that we're increasing the gap continuously. It hasn't really mm -hmm. gone down. And same with networking professionals. I've noticed both of those industries, the shortage of needed people only seems to go up. Whereas developers, we do tend mm -hmm. to have plateaus I've seen. Uh, sure. Yeah. Any thoughts on how that could be tackled or, or uh, and it doesn't match with what you're seeing? Well, one of the things I w wanted to bring up, you know, you're talking about developers in, as a whole. I've talked to a lot of people, you know, learning coding or been doing coding for a long time. And uh, the question that I usually ask them, how many, how many classes have you had on doing secure coding? And the number of positive responses I receive is, is extremely low in the, in the single digit percentage rates, which is a little concern. I know a few people that do that for a living. That's their, their whole thing is making secure code. They take, you know, internally done code and, and do reviews and, and, and figure out how to make it more secure. And they also even do reviews of vendor code too. But the other thing that's happening is there's going to be more no code, low code type coding that's going to be happening. Mm -hmm. And I think we've yet, yet to see exactly how much that's going to affect the market in general. And then, of course, you got the LLMs, getting the code rolled out on LLMs. You know, I've, you know, people have been experimenting with that. You know, and of course, LLMs, we talk about security, the LLMs are being used, you know, they get around some of the guardrails and get right malware code. But I've also used LLMs to develop, ask them, say, how, how would you detect this type of attack, mm -hmm. you know, and, uh, and even write an intrusion detection uh, mm -hmm. rule 
for it. So, you know, all these new things that are coming out, it can be like you had alluded to before, can be used for good or evil. The same thing, you know, you have somebody's fake video personality and voice cloned and, uh, you know, you imitate this CFO and you say, hey, I need to have this quarter million, you know, moves this afternoon. Sure. <laughs> That's yeah, thing, sure. So. Yeah, I look forward to kind of the computational requirements of LLM coming down some so that right. it can be uh, faster at a less, mm-hmm. you know, at a, at a more reasonable price point. Because right, right now to have fast LLM, you know, at an enterprise scale, you have to make a significant hardware investment. Um, exactly. I look forward to that. I've always been a fan of things like prepared statements. Anytime there's like a user input, you know, do like a hash comparison, find the example that you've already written that you know is sanitized, mm-hmm. but that's incredibly limiting and mm-hmm. turns into into kind of an exercise of its own is trying to imagine all the possible inputs to variable fields and things like that. I could see LLM sometime in the future serving that purpose to where all user inputs go through some LLM where the LLM is trained in what are safe outcomes and scrutinizes any type of input and uh, mm-hmm. you know, makes that happen. Because today, that's kind of like some kind of spaghetti of regular expression and and whatnot. Right. And it ends up getting defeated, as right. we see you know, all is the it? time. People slip escape characters still in or inject shellcode directly in, sure. uh, into that type of stuff. But I could see LLM you know, working in that space as well. Old-fashioned uh, cat and mouse, uh, whack-a-mole, <laughs> cybersecurity. <Yeah. laughs> Same thing with the LLMs right now. Yeah, no, totally agree. But I could see LLM helping uh, reduce the amount of moles to whack or uh, reduce the number of holes to watch, I guess, sure. um, for the whack-a-mole, and, kind of like helping us get there. And, and the good part is is you can put in the rules that are almost like a bi-directional firewall. You, if, you, if you don't catch it on the input, you can at least maybe catch it on the output. Sure. You know? Yeah, so, sure. Which is good. Absolutely. So, Bob, being mindful of the time, uh, like I was telling you in the pre-show, uh, we try to hit this kind of, you know, sweet spot where folks, you know, trying to have lunch, they've only got so much time in the day. Uh, so one last question. So sure. given the future that we see us, you know, coming at us, uh, or at least however far it is that we can see, what would you give as three pieces of actionable advice to anybody out there who was in a position of either directly affecting cybersecurity or someone in a strategic position uh, responsible for those decisions? Sure. You bet. To start out, I'd like to say every organization is a little different and uh, developing a risk management program is almost like getting a custom-made suit tailored for you, you know, very specifically. But to try to get it down to, to three items, I think one of the things is to have proper visibility and context in your network to monitor and uh, manage security incidents in the future. You know, visibility in the data flows or telemetry and know what's going on on the endpoints, you know, and be able to put those together and also to have the right logs available to do a uh, complete incident response investigation. Also, start investing, especially if it's mid to large company, start trying to invest in machine learning, even neural networks if you can, integrate it into your security program, and have it assist in prioritizing risks in the network and in the whole incident response process. And then third, I think is more of a general broad, but start on developing a security culture in your organization. You know, where where the buy-in is from not only the IT organization, but all the business units. And, uh, you know, to be able to make it a positive thing going forward where everybody works together for a greater goal. 
So, Excellent. Well, thank you for those, Bob. So unfortunately, that's all the time that we have today. If our listeners out there wanted to uh, keep in touch with you, see what you're up to, what have you, how can they do so? Do you have social media, sure. have uh, uh, email that you're welcome to questions do. at? Sure. Probably the easiest way is if you just Google Bob Carver Cybersecurity, LinkedIn will come up on the first page. I'll be on several pages. I also have a Twitter account. Twitter seems to be not quite as popular as it used to be for security, but uh, I've managed to keep that going. Also, I had a brand new YouTube account that I just started not too long ago. So, but anyway, thank you very much. Yeah, I excellent. Appreciate so it. the YouTube channel that you started, what type of content do you plan on putting there? Yeah, I do a little bit of everything. Uh, I do you know, for general public too, and then I do also for businesses. My very last one was on risk scorecard management or risk scorecards and how uh, the cybersecurity insurance industry is going to be starting to measure their clients more carefully before they allow you to have insurance. Yes, that is uh, coming sooner rather than later. Po folks don't realize it, but the actuaries have spoken and the yeah. numbers don't lie. So okay. uh, I yeah. predict that'll be coming very, very soon here. Yeah. Well, anyway, uh, Bob, thanks again for joining us today. And to our listeners out there, uh, Bob, uh, as he said, you can find him on LinkedIn and on YouTube. And uh, that's all the time we have today. Thanks so much. Thank you, David. Take care. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Future of Cyber Risk podcast, brought to you by Team Cymru. For the latest episodes, please visit team-cymru.com or search Future of Cyber Risk on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks, and we'll catch you on the next episode.